Audi. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the Plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, and would you believe it? It is episode 100 of the Big Travel Podcast, and we have a rather jaw-dropping travel story for you today. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand, and we are proudly sponsored by WeCure, the leading health tourism provider in the UK, connecting anyone seeking dental treatments, aesthetic procedures, and social and mental well-being with internationally accredited medical institutions in Turkey. Visit wecure.co.uk slash bigtravelpodcast to claim your ex- exclusive offer. WeCure turns your treatment into a relaxing holiday. For more details, visit wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast. Now, before I get on to today's guest, I need to tell you a little story. Some of you will know that before David and I had our two children, I had five miscarriages. Obviously, there were some very sad and trying times, but we were very lucky in finding the most brilliant doctor to help us have our two boys. When going through the miscarriages, I found there really wasn't a lot of support out there. And so I ended up recording our experience in the hope that it might help anyone else going through the frankly quite devastating experience themselves. This became the documentary First Heartbeat, which I made for TLC UK and Discovery all around the world. And I have to say it got an incredible response. We were on all the national news channels and all the papers, and I really hoped it helped do what I wanted it to do and open up the dialogue about something that's often not talked about or supported enough. Anyway, it was a great experience working with Mr. Shahata, both as he treated me and also filming him for the documentary. Not long after I had our second child, I was interviewing him for a different project and he mentioned his background in Egypt and Sudan. We were sitting in his very lovely clinic in Epsom in Surrey and he said to me, did you know I was once in prison? Well, my jaw nearly hit the floor. Mr. Shahata is a wonderful doctor, a very established and well-respected man who works for both the NHS in Surrey and has his own practice on Harley Street. This is not something I expected to hear him say. And so he told me his incredible story. And today he's going to do the same for you. World-leading miscarriage expert, obstetrician and gynaecologist Dr. Hassan Shahata has an extraordinary story to tell. As the son of a Sudanese-Egyptian family, he grew up in Khartoum and as a junior doctor was thrown headlong into the world of revolution, military Islamic extremism, beatings and torture. We talk about his horrific time in ghost house prisons, life in Sudan and Egypt, sitting on Bob Marley's bed, Donald Trump and hydroxychloroquine, Donald Trump and hydroxychloroquine, following Liverpool FC around the world and his extraordinary work with miscarriages. Dr. Hassan Shahata on the Big Travel Podcast. You're recently recovered from the virus. 
I have indeed. And um, it was a very hard time, I have to say. So we, uh, I had it actually at the beginning, at the beginning of March. And uh, the day I was diagnosed, sorry, I, the day I diagnosed myself was the day that the first doctor passed away, Adil Tayar, and he's a friend of mine. So I was feeling unwell, having this amazing headache that about my head was about to burst. And then um, somebody rang my head, Adil passed away, a mutual friend. And it was very, very scary. Uh, I remember I had to say to my wife, I don't know what's going to happen to me. You know, if I'm getting unwell, I'll let you know who's our, you know, did the contact our financial advisor, just if anything happens to me, I don't come back from hospital. So it was very, very scary. But thankfully, I didn't need to go to hospital. So uh, it took me about a couple of weeks to recover, but yeah, I'm back to normal. I'm very sorry to hear about your friend. And I know that doctors on the front line, particularly black and Asian, and Asian minority ethnic doctors um, have, have had it, you know, really hard. So that must have been even extra worrying for you, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, I know. But, um, you know, thankfully, um, you know, we had some, my daughter was ill, my son was ill, my sister, who's a GP in Birmingham, she was ill as well. And she took about three months to recover. But anyway, we're all back to normal, thankfully. Just because it's very a current issue, you actually yeah. took hydroxychloroquine, which has been in the news because it's one of the medications that Trump has spoken about. And for some reason, it's become controversial. Now, I took it for months and months under your care when I to have my children, because as you told me, it's an immune modulator, I do believe. You obviously know a lot more about it from me, but that's my understanding of it. And also, I, for me, it was a very nice drug, you know, had no real side effects or anything what is very briefly tell me what is the problem what is people's problem with hydroxychloroquine and, and you seem to find it beneficial absolutely and you know, i don't know if you've seen the news this morning nhs has granted it the green light to restart the trials again that's interesting, interesting interesting i mean i never want to agree with donald trump you know but uh, this is possibly uh, yeah. one of the things we might agree with him on I, I think, you know, Donald Trump, you know, he, he picked it up from somewhere, somewhere, someone. So hydroxychloroquine, as you know, um, is an immune modulator. It's been around since 1955. Very interesting. Used to be a malaria drug. Uh, so if you go back to history, when the uh, uh, British army arrived in India, a lot of their soldiers were getting sick with malaria. And they discovered that the locals were eating this particular kind of plant leaf thing and they were not getting malaria as much. So they investigated it and they found that this kind of is the hydroxy, the quinine at the time, quinine leaf. So they started giving it to their soldiers, but because it was so bitter, they were not taking it. And then someone came with this idea said, why don't we put it for them in alcohol and then they will drink it. And they were giving them rations of alcohol with the quinine and actually they started having it, uh, drinking it and they had less malaria um, kind of outbreaks uh, and that's what brought us gin and tonic. So um, hydroxychloroquine has two main kind of uh, actions if you like. One is an immune modulator as you, you kindly mentioned. So it works on something called toll-like receptors and these toll-like receptors modulate our immune system reaction. Uh, and the other effect, it actually can attack a cell wall of a virus. And it has been used in the past with some virus infections. So it's not an, a reinvention of the idea. 
you know, Trump obviously divides opinion. And um, as you would expect, a lot of the kind of like intellectuals are mainly Democrats rather than Republicans. And I think from day one, I recall I spoke to a professor um, in, in the U.S. and he said to me, I bet you there would be a war against hydroxychloroquine because Trump mentioned it. So the word, so when I rang him, I said, isn't it great that Trump has mentioned hydroxychloroquine? Because I've been chatting to him about it. And he said, I don't think so. I think it's going to be a problem. And indeed, that's what happened. I think the provisional trials on its work in intensive care, it's disappointing and understandable because you have to use a very high dose. And therefore, you will have side effects. I think it's action from the total like receptors and the viral wall needs to be done earlier and at a no- normal dose of 400 milligrams. And I think that would make sense. And I think the only problem I have with it, Lisa, is that this, the virus is not that high. So ideally, we should have been doing this back in March and April. I could I could talk about this all day. It's fascinating. But I do want to get on to the miscarriages and also only briefly the miscarriages and also your incredible travel story which you told the basics of it to me one time when I was sitting in your clinic I was there to interview you it was after the uh, the, the miscarriages and the then we made the documentary together and uh, you know that it was it's just an incredible travel story if you can call it a travel story however tell me tell me briefly about the miscarriages I know you've had some very standout cases with women that have had many, many miscarriages. Just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, thank you, Lisa. But I think uh, it's really important. I know you, you're quite humble and this program is about me doing the travel. But I think it's really important to mention that you were quite selfless in your situation because despite you were going through uh, terrible times and um, high number of miscarriages, you were so brave that you wanted to document what was going on with you so you can give hope to other women. I will never forget that. And I thought, wow, this couple is just, you and David were just unbelievably brave to do that. So I, I, I would like to thank you for being a role model for other people that you put yourself really aside to document what you're going through, which was at the time, of course, it was still very pioneering, very new um, of all the medications. And I'm very grateful for you putting your trust in in, in me. So uh, so you'll make me cry because I haven't I haven't thought about the miscarriages emotionally for a long time. I've got two children now. I'm very busy. And, you know, I say it kind of casually. Oh, I had five miscarriages and, you know, kind of move on. But sometimes you forget the enormity of how that felt at the time. And I was sitting here waiting to talk to you and just, you know, taking a moment to think about it and remembering and remembering how it felt to come into to be sitting in your waiting room, knowing that you'd be going in, in a few minutes time, you'd be going into that room, getting a scan and you will be told whether your baby is alive or dead. You know, it, that the, it's making me shiver now, the enormity of those moments. It was just something, you, you know, we, I just used to say to myself, just step by step, day by day, there's nothing you can do. But time moved at a very, very strange rate. And I, I did want to make the documentary to make sure that other people had a, a pathway almost to, to help guide them, you know, and that was incredible to do that together. So thank you for, for you know, for saying those nice things. You're making me now very, very emotional as well, because it also brings back memories. But you know what? I've learned a lot from you as well and David, because by voicing 
what the concerns you had about your previous experience? Because sometimes people mention them, but because you were doing it more on a, if you're like a documentary type of thing, actually we had to say everything. What what couples go through in A and E, the lack of scans, the lack of understanding, the fact that we turned away, um, all the issues that you've had, and I think that made me change a lot in my practice. Uh, not only to ensure that we have a good service for our patients, but also through the NHS, because you know I work on the NHS. So we've changed a lot based on the work you've done, and especially the putting aside the controversies about treatment options and things like that. I think the emotion, which I still think we are so poor at managing in the NHS as well as the private sector, um, just I think it's really quite important. And I know you, you you keep doing a lot of good work. So thank you again. Yeah, I mean, people, the emotional side is, you know, the, the NHS and you just don't have time to deal with the emotional side. You know, you've, you've, you've got to deal with the physical. And, and I get that. But it's really lovely that having seen the emotional side, you know, via the documentary that that's being taken into account. So my interest in miscarriages actually uh, started long, long time ago. I wanted to understand because I felt that when couples come and say to them um, in a clinic that, sorry, um, we, we, don't, we can't find a reason, just try again. I just felt that it was very unsatisfactory. Uh, so my link with it came when I was attending a conference in Italy, I remember, and there was this gentleman called uh, Professor Alan Beer from Chicago, and he was speaking on the immune system relationship to miscarriage. So it was very interesting and um, kind of talk. I went and spoke to him afterwards, and I learned a lot from him, but I was really interested to do some work I try to understand because the majority of, of couples, about 70% or more, we tell them we can't find a reason, just try again, or bad luck. So I, I went back, spoke to my immunology colleague, uh, a, a gentleman who's now retired, Dr. Amulak Bansal, and I said, have you heard of these natural killer cells? And he said, yes, I've done my PhD on them. I said, wow, what a coincidence. So that's when we started work on, on, on natural killer cells. And natural killer cells basically are subtypes of white blood cells, which are responsible for protection from viruses and bacteria. And white blood cells get divided into something called T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes. And then these are subdivided into what we call natural killer cells and toll-like receptors. And they are actually supposed to identify, uh, if you like, a threat to the body and attack it. And the assumption here that similar to what we see in autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, where your natural killer cells start attacking your own joint, thinking wrongly that is a foreign material there, it does the same with pregnancy. So pregnancy is protected by the immune system, but if your immune system is faulty, higher in number or higher in function, they think that pregnancy is foreign and attack it and cause a miscarriage. And you have seen people who have had, I think one of your most high profile cases had 18 miscarriages. Absolutely. I mean, high profile because it was it came up to the media. But I, you know, the highest number of miscarriages I had was one of my patients. She had 32 miscarriages and she'd had a successful outcome. We always had this um, getting onto the travel. We always had this joke about you, David and I, whenever we came to see you. And it was probably one of our ways of making it a bit more lighthearted. You know, we were sitting there anxiously waiting to find out whether our baby had a heartbeat or whatever stage of the treatment we were at and we'd say because you 
like a holiday as much as I like a holiday. We had this whole little fantasy that you'd be sitting behind, beside your, in, underneath your desk as you're sitting there, you've got your suitcase packed, you've got a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt on underneath your normal shirt. And as soon as we're out the door, you're, you're off on holiday, just because I know you love travel. But let's get on to your, your great travel, your, your first very important travel story. And we better start with where you're from. Um, so I come from Sudan. I come from Khartoum, um, half Egyptian, half Sudanese, kind of ethnically, but I see myself more as Sudanese because I was born and raised there, although I have majority of my family members are actually in, in Egypt. My parents, or my late father who passed away back in 2011, uh, God bless his soul, he was a maxillofacial surgeon. And my mother studied law, but she decided to become a housewife and look after the children. So we're the five of us. I'm the eldest. Um, so I was raised actually uh, in a very interesting school because I went to this uh, Italian convent school, the junior one called uh, St. Francis, and then the senior one called Comboni College. So they, it's the Comboni Order, um, which is actually a very well-known kind of um, uh, Christian uh, Catholic order. And we were taught mainly by um, nuns and fathers, and in Khartoum, it was amazingly cosmopolitan. So if you like, if I can compare it to any school, say in the UK, it's probably it was the Eton of, of Sudan. So you had probably most kind of influential people graduated from, from Kamboni College uh, in Khartoum. So we, we were raised really amazing culture. So you see, you know, all the ambassadors, all everybody, all the cultures. Um, so there was absolutely amazing culture and, and lots of good, and we're still a lot of, uh, we, we kept our friendship. So I did the GCSEs and A-levels and went into a university of Khartoum. Um, medical school there. And actually, University of Khartoum is a very old school because it started by Gordon Pasha, who was the, you know, the, during the British colony of Sudan. And it's a very old medical school. And when I went in, it was the only medical school. So they took 120 students for the whole of Sudan. So you have to be really at the top of your game in to get into to medical school there. And uh, I was lucky to go, uh, to go into medical school there in Khartoum. Six years during that time, I met my current wife, Salma, who was also a medical student with me. And I graduated uh, from Sudan in 1988. And I think it's quite important. So I went in in 1982 to mention a couple of important things politically then. So in 1985, uh, there was a, uh, if you like, a revolution against the old government of uh, President Numeri. And that was amazing because we were medical students. We, you know, we went out and it was an amazing uh, revolution and we brought democracy and doctors have always been at the front line, democracy to, to Sudan. And we had an amazing time during that time, kind of political debates, etc. And I was quite involved in that. Um, I graduated in uh, 1988 um, and when I was a house officer, so in June 1989, we had a military coup by a chap called Omar al-Bashir, who actually stayed then as a government for 30 years. Um, at the time, I was a junior's doctor's committee representative in my area. And as they do usually with these kind of coups, they will actually take all the uh, unionists and put them in, in jail. So I was the only one left because I was junior. Nobody knew about me. And I found a lot of people looking up to me and said, what are we going to do? And I said, well, let's organize a strike. And I stood up on a soapbox and so on, not knowing, of 
cause that the next day I will be taken into castration as well. So I, I was put in, um, um, as a, I was put in um, kind of in these so-called ghost houses as a political prisoner. And, and the ghost houses are basically banned by these security guys, not the police. I was there actually not for a very long time the first time. And um, after a few weeks, I was released. During the time, we were very well treated, no problems at all. And, and we just released after saying, look, please don't, uh, not please, but don't get involved in politics, etc., etc." A few weeks later, there was an announcement of having a uh, kind of a national strike. And I was warned by uh, a colleague of mine and said, look, they will probably hear about it and they will come and nick you again. And, and I actually went into hiding at the time. But what they did is actually came to my house. My, actually, my father was stuck abroad uh, in a conference and they actually uh, took my grandfather and said, if you don't um, send the message to, through my mom, if he doesn't, your son, if he doesn't kind of present himself, we will keep his grandfather incarcerated. So I had to go and present myself. But that was then the tough time because then I was left there for, for a very long time. Um, there was, you know, beating, a kind of uh, um, um, mental torture, um, kind of uh, abuse. It was a very difficult time. And, and I lost a lot of colleagues um, there who, who died just being beaten up by baseball bats or during interrogation. It was a very, very tough time. And um, it gets very emotional, sorry. <laughs> Um, and um, so it, it wasn't easy for me, to be honest, to, to actually accept that. And it was really interesting because what, what worried me is that they were, the people who were actually doing all these things were youngsters. So if a youngster kind of gets really, I was thinking, you know, I could be killed, you know, because if he shoots me or anything like that, they, they were kind of really uh, early 20s and early 30s. Eventually, I remember after a few months, um, one day they've asked me to have a shower and wear um, some white clothes. They tied up my, kind of blindfolded me and they said, we're going to take you to the desert and execute you. And um, so, and I genuinely thought I'm going to do that. They said, oh, what would you like to eat? This would be your last meal and so on. Uh, anyway, they took me in a car and I remember still like yesterday, that suddenly the car slowed down, they opened the door and they pushed me. And, and I can hear the, door, the car just speeding away. And then I just remember some people kind of speaking, what happened to this man? What's, and then, then people came and lift me up and took my blindfold and I found actually I was just near a mosque near my house. So I went, uh, I went home. And I remember my father um, said to me, you're leaving tonight. And I said, where am I leaving? You know, I have my fiance, I have my life, my work. And he said, nope, you're leaving tonight. So uh, go and say bye to your family and your fiance and so on. And I did that. And he took me, I remember in the evening to uh, the British, sorry, the Egyptian ambassador in Khartoum. And he uh, just said, we're going to let you go into Egypt tonight to Cairo. And I said, but I'm sure my name will be there in the kind of uh, airport. And they said, don't worry, it's been sorted. So I remember very well that at two o'clock in the morning, my father said goodbye to me. And I went into the ambassador's car, drove into the airport, which wasn't far away from the ambassador's house, 
into the tarmac, into the plane, and just went up to um, to, to the plane, and uh, they closed the door. That was it. And I remember when I arrived in in Cairo, because I didn't have a passport or anything. I arrived in Cairo. Uh, I saw this policeman comes and says, uh, "Doctor Hassan Shihata." I said, "Yes, come with me." So I went down. And there was my uncle who was a, a senior policeman in Cairo and they were expecting me and they had my passport there. So actually my father was really kind of, had a, you know, kind of was quite organized and he actually sent my passport to in Egypt in advance before I arrived. And um, so I went into, the, into Cairo and I stayed there with, with my family. And that was really a kind of a difficult time, I have to say. How long were you in prison for? If you go, if you calculate the ins and outs, I would say probably about um, uh, four to five months uh, because, you know, you went in and out a couple of times um, and that wasn't fun. But it was not real prison. It's these ghost houses. So actually it was just a nightmare. And as I said, lots of people unfortunately passed away. What do you mean by a ghost house? What was that like? Call it ghost house because it is not under the police, not under the military. It's under the secret services. And they used to call it ghost house. In Arabic, we say biyut al-ajbah. And ghost house, these, these guys, these youngsters, they nicked it that name because they kind of tried to be kind of scary. So they, they call it ghost houses. And it's well, well known. Lots of books have been written since then about people's experiences there, about these ghost houses. It must have been terrifying. You said a lot of your, your colleagues were killed. And you mentioned, I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about this. I you know, feel reluctant almost to ask, but it's my job to ask. You mentioned torture and beatings. What, what exactly happened? Do you mind talking about it? I don't mind at all. Um, it took me a long time, actually, to speak about it. Um, and actually, uh, I try sometimes when I have a chat with my children. They don't want to hear it. Is it really interesting? So basically, we were tied on trees, beaten, kind of whipped with a kind of uh, onto your back. And then they would pour salt and water on your back. You know, the beating, uh, spitting on your face, I found that really, really, really horrible feeling people coming spitting on your face. But for me, I think the worst experience, actually, Lisa, was the sleep deprivation. Uh, you would, if nobody has ever been forced not to sleep, you would never understand what sleep deprivation can do to your morale and to your livelihood. So beat me, torture me anytime, but do not prevent me from sleeping. You actually become v- broken after a while. So I wasn't, in a way, because I, wanted, I wasn't a very senior political figure, I wasn't really, I didn't have my um, kind of toenails and my uh, kind of nails from my fingers pulled out. I've seen that with some of my colleagues. That's part of the torture they had. Um, I wasn't beaten with a baseball bat on my head, but I have had some colleagues who have had that. But um, the sleep deprivation is unbelievably horrible, 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 because you, you try to sleep, they come and wake you up, pour water on you, cold water, hot water, and they just knock on the door all night. It was just terrible, terrible times. One of our, if you like, a very, it's a kind of a sign of the, is or, or, actually, we use him as more of a, um, what's the right word for it, as, um, if you like, uh, an icon of, of, of that time when we had um, as, a, as a kind of a political prisoner is a friend of mine. Actually, his brother was a, is my colleague, um, 
the person who died, I knew him through his brother. Uh, his name is Ali Fadl. And um, he was beaten to death with a baseball bat. And, um, and it was terrible. What was even worse as well, then you see some of the doctors who are your colleagues, they're actually coming to check on us to allow the torturers to torture us more. So they will ask them, can this person take more? And they will come and assess, yes, he can. Can you believe that somebody of a medical background does something like that? Thankfully, now we have, and, and unfortunately, that government, of course, stayed for 30 years. We only got rid of them June last year, only exactly today, a year ago, to the day, 30th of June, exactly a year ago. That's incredible. Uh, incredible. So did they carry on with this torturous re regime? I know nothing oh, really about Sudan. So, so we ended up with the worst combination of a regime because you ended up with the military government who are also Islamic fanatics. So, and that's, you know, you see what they've done in Darfur. I'm sure you've heard what happened in Darfur. Uh, they divided the south of Sudan from Sudan. So there have been ethnic, religious killings like nobody's business. They've killed millions. And at, at last, just one of them being taken to the International Court of Justice two weeks ago. Uh, but we need more of them to be taken um, to the International Court of Justice. They're, they're a horrible, horrible time. You were how old when this was happening? So I was, uh, that was 1980, uh, 1990, 89 to 90. So I would have been uh, 26. How did it feel when they blindfolded you and took you out in the car? Presumably they were told you they were going to execute you in the desert. I genuinely thought I was going to be executed. I genuinely thought that. I don't know what my heart rate would have been then, but I remember I was sweating. Uh, my mouth was dry. Um, I had palpitations and, uh, and, and uh, you know, they said, you know, they shaved my head. They put me on this white kind of what we call jalabiya. Um, and I genuinely, genuinely thought I was going to be executed. And, um, of course, they say, oh, what meal? <laughs> I couldn't eat. Um, so it was a horrible, horrible experience. And uh, it just like when they put you on the car, I remember I couldn't walk. So they were carrying me because my, my legs just became not mine. Uh, you know, you were, they were dragging me because I just felt so weak. And uh, I'm a very strong man um, in will and built. And I, for the first time in my life, I felt that I'm nobody. And that's it, that's the end of me. And, and it was just scary. And when you were thrown out the car and you looked up and you saw the mosque near your parents' house. That was an amazing feeling, of course, but also confusing. I was literally confused. I didn't know what happened. And, um, and I was shaking. And then some people thought I was like a, a mad, crazy person who, who just maybe on drugs or something because I was shaking. But at the same time, they saw that I was wearing this clean jalabia and I was barefooted. And, and I, I just couldn't, and I, I just kept kind of pointing to the house and I said, you know, like, I just want to go there. So they took me there, I couldn't even speak. And of course my mother was very happy when she saw me. Um, uh, it, it was just uh, unbelievable. And I remember that day still, I was confused of what I need to do. So when my father said to me, you know, you, you fly to Cairo, yes, I objected because I didn't know what I wanted, but uh, it was all so surreal absolutely uh, kind of confused. And I stayed 
even in, in Egypt, I was there like for a few weeks, not knowing what I want. I was very depressed, very low. Had amazing support from my uncle, who in a way, he, he himself understood because my uncle, actually a very interesting um, story. Um, uh, so my uncle, Muhammad Shihata, who he, he's a, he was a pilot in the Egyptian army and his plane in 1967 was shot in the Israeli-Egyptian conflict. And he parachuted down into this no man's land uh, uh, in, in Palestine at the time. And, um, and he was pronounced dead to his family. And he, he hid there for, I think, nine months, almost a year before he traveled back to, to Cairo. Uh, so he understood about the post-traumatic stress I was in because he went through similar kind of, kind of, kind of feeling. And uh, he was very supportive of his family. So I'm very grateful for them. So what happened? You, you're in Cairo and, you know, what, what happened next? So in Cairo, a few weeks um, of it took me a long time to recover. But then I started to recall my wonderful times in Cairo because as a youngster, because I'm come on having this Egyptian link, we used to go to Cairo and Alexandria for holidays. Amazing times we've had as children because my, my, my father's kind of my uncles and aunts, there are about 11 of them. And they've all had children. So imagine having this huge gathering every summer. And we used to go to this, you know, we will rent probably several villas, several flats, and uh, maybe, and, you know, we'll go to Alexandria and, and lovely places. So, so we had one, I had wonderful memories of Egypt, actually. Um, so I started to actually to recall these kind of memories. I tried to be positive. I started also to prepare um, for my studies to do part one of the Royal College for Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And also at the time, I wanted to get married because I left my fiance. Imagine going in Khartoum saying to your fiance that, uh, to Salma, I said, I'm going to Cairo. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know when I'm going to come back. I'll probably marry you sometime, one time in the future, and probably we'll meet up one day. And that was really quite confusing. Um, so I was quite determined to, 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 to kind of link up with Salma again. And because she was also a doctor and we kind of, the, the, the relationship between the UK and, the, and Sudan through the Royal Colleges was very well established. So that's something I was going to plan to do anyway. Maybe I did it a little bit earlier than I wanted or I planned for. Um, so I started preparing for that. And, uh, and then I, um, I think during that time, I traveled a lot in Egypt. So I went to amazing places in Egypt with my cousins and, um, and, 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 and so on. Um, eventually, actually, uh, we decided to get married. Uh, so we got married in, was it November 1990? And it was really interesting because I couldn't be there. So in, in, in Islam, you are allowed to ask someone to represent you in, in that kind of the ceremony. And then, so that, and so that was done on my behalf in Khartoum. And then Selma came and joined me in Cairo for honeymoon and and we were officially married so we had a wonderful time and and we just went around for our honeymoon in, in egypt absolutely lovely so hang on a sec you weren't at your own wedding no i didn't have a wedding so, i never had a wedding Still so not. who married your wife for you who was your representative uh, so actually uh it's usually the eldest so actually it's my grandfather who was there so he was representing me and, uh, and Selma, usually the tradition is the man will be there and then the, 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 the bride's father will be there. 
So her father was there, but for me, I couldn't be there. So it was my grandfather. So actually, that's one of the things. We've never, ever had a wedding. So we don't have wedding photos. We don't have a wedding video. I know Salma had some photos with her wedding dress in, in Khartoum uh, with my, my f- friends and family beside her. Uh, so that's one of, I would say, regrets of my life because we've never, ever had a wedding. Well, I think you should have one. I mean, now is not the time. I think just this week we've been told we can have weddings again, but no reception. I mean, to me, the wedding is all about the party, you know, so you need to maybe schedule one for next year or something and have a party. Yes, I know. We. I mean, this actually November is going to be 30 years of marriage. So actually, maybe it's a good kind of time, isn't it? It is. It, it would be a good, t- a, kind, a good time for it if the whole world hadn't shut down and things like yeah. that weren't allowed. But it sounds like you've, um, it, that's the sort of adversity that you were used to overcoming, you know. Was it a problem for her to get out of Sudan or was that OK? No, no. no. And I think it was, um, it was straightforward, easy. And then after the honeymoon, she went back to Sudan because, um, you know, she needed to finish her, her training as well because I was my training was suspended. And then I needed to finish my training. And eventually I got a visa to go to uh, to London to do my MRCOG part one uh, in March of um, 1991. And during that year, basically, I just had it to recover. So I finished my training um, and then I traveled. Um, um, I actually, interesting, I went to Saudi Arabia for the first time because my father at the time was working in Saudi Arabia. And that was interesting because I've never been to Saudi Arabia. But for me, it's actually interesting because I went during the World Cup 1990. And, um, and uh, I still remember the, um, that I wanted to watch this match with lots of friends. And they were about four hours away, the England-Cameroon match. Um, and so I traveled from um, Riyadh uh, to the Eastern province to meet up with some friends there to watch the match. Uh, and just going through the desert... Uh, of uh, of uh, of Saudi Arabia was just unbelievably uh, amazing because you know it's just complete desert with this beautiful roads running uh, in between and I found the culture was very interesting actually um, also to learn from from the different culture um, very restricted at the time I think now Saudi Arabia of course they're opening up but um, uh, lovely people lovely food um, uh, and then I uh, traveled back to Egypt and then came to London. What was it like arriving in London, apart from cold? <laughs> oh, London was just unbelievably cold. And I was, um, um, so I stayed in St. John's Wood um, when I arrived. Uh, um, and actually, I knew London very well because we used to come to London quite regularly in the summer um, uh, with my father, with my parents um, um, for holiday. And we used to stay, I remember we used to stay, um, uh, and then it was CNA, which I think is now Primark. Uh, behind there, we, we, we had a kind of a flat we used to rent there quite a lot, a lot of times uh, in Marble Arch, basically. And we just loved coming to London. I, you know, we knew London very well. And you know what? Still, because you know, I have a clinic in Harley Street. And when I go to Harley Street, and 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 that's one of the, I still have that feeling of a holiday. You get linked with it. And that's why I love going there, because it just reminds you of your kind of times when I was young. So cold, but, you know, it was quite nice. And then, of course, uh, very delighted to be back to sorry to be in the in the UK again so I can follow my beloved team Liverpool. (laughs) 
I know a few friends will be they'll be interested and, and pleased to hear you say that. Uh, it's funny what you say about London like that. I feel it, I find it exciting still. I mean, I live in London. I live in Greenwich, and I find it so exciting. And I miss it now because I haven't been into the centre of town for three and a half months now. You know, I haven't seen the river or the you know all the beautiful buildings and uh, around the Harley Street where I used to go and and see your clinic you know all the just gorgeous gorgeous um I want to say Georgian they're probably Georgian aren't they the 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 buildings around there it's so exciting um so you've you've settled here since really did you ever live anywhere else I mean I know you enjoy travel a lot no I think this is really my home now so I spend here now more time than I spent in Khartoum and so yeah so this is my home and I had all my children here my four children here so yeah um, and uh, more or less lived in uh, South London Surrey all my life so I I moved from St John's Wood then to uh, Essex so my my first son Eamon is an Essex boy, so he was born uh, in uh, Colchester, and then we moved from there. Because you know, as a junior doctor, you work around uh, lots of um, kind of hospitals. So my training really started with um, Col- uh, we started actually South End on Sea, and then went to Colchester, and then from Colchester, both my wife and I worked there together. Uh, she went to Oxford. Uh, she's a pediatrician for training, uh, and I went to Whittington, which is North London, and and then she went to Nottingham, then I went to kind of UCH, um, and then uh, we ended up eventually together in London when I was appointed as a, re- a rotational registrar at St. George's in Tooting, and that's where I had a flat in Wimbledon, had my other three children there, and then we basically, that was have been our base, and then we moved from there to where we are now in Cheam. Sounds like such a, um, a, a successful medical family. You must look back on that time when you were in prison. And, you know, how do you feel when you look back on that time compared to now? Very, yeah, absolutely. You know what? I could, I, my, my memory goes back to that day when I was told I was going to be executed. And, and, and I look at what my achievements just in life, having a family and having lovely kids, well, you know, well brought up, I think. And, and what I've done with my career and my wife and support and family. So, uh, yes, amazing. And, and you know what? Uh, this is what I love about uh, this country, because I was given the opportunity. Um, you know, you work hard, you get rewarded. And I worked extremely hard. I don't need to remind people what junior doctors hours those days. We used to be one in three. You work 24 hours and you're working the next day until five o'clock. There was only three registrars or three SHOs. It was very hard work, but enjoyed it. I loved my profession and learned a lot. But it wasn't with ups and downs. It wasn't easy. But um, my passion for travel never stopped. So I carried on traveling. Um, uh, and we did, you know, we did the, the caravan and camping, the, the things that I don't like. But I know my wife likes that because she grew up in a farm. I'm more like luxury kind of person. <laughs> uh, but those days we couldn't afford to go on kind of expensive holidays when we were junior doctors. And now, of course, we do lots of lots of nice holidays. Give me your, your top travel experiences. Where have been your most standout places? So, uh, the one I did, which is the Euro travel, I did as, I did as a student and a medical student. And I did that back in 1982 and I did with with four friends so we traveled around Europe and I remember each one of us took with with him one thousand dollars for a holiday for a month 
And from that $1,000, you're going to eat, drink, and pay for the youth hostels. So we flew to Athens. So my mother didn't want me to go. And my father was a softy and he wanted me to go. So he said, if you really want to go, because she was worried about what's going to happen to these boys first time together in Europe. And he said, you need to earn your money to go. And I will pay for your ticket. And I remember the ticket at the time was $200 from Khartoum to Athens return. And, 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 I, and he said, you know, calculated, you need $1,000. So if you raise $1,000, um, you'll be fine. And I'm going to give you $200 to raise that. So I remember I went to this friend of ours. They used to bring like cash and carry. And I said, look, can we, can we buy from you cornflakes? Don't ask me why. <laughs> Kellogg's cornflakes in Khartoum to go and sell to these shops. And he said, of course. And he gave us this amazing price. We couldn't believe it because he said, we're going to make a huge margin. Actually, we might stay for three months. Anyway, he rang us one day and he said, you know, the, the conflicts has arrived. So we, after we did the deal with every other shop, we took like deposits from them. We went and found this Egyptian conflicts. It was in Kellogg's. And I have to admit, it didn't taste as good as Kellogg's. No disrespect to Egyptian conflicts. I'm sure it's nice now. Um, and... So we went to go and have to convince these people to buy these cornflakes. And we had to be really, really funny. Anyway, we managed and we raised the money and we flew. So we, 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 uh, we flew to Athens. And then from there, we um, actually, from the port, we went to Brindisi in Italy. So we spent some time in Athens. And then um, uh, from, from, Brind uh, from, from Athens, we went to Brindisi. And then we took a train to Bologna and then Milano then Venice, then Genoa, and then another train to Cannes, Marseille, and Nice, and then to Barcelona, then Madrid, and then we took a, a flight, a train a flight back to Athens, and then from Athens we went back to Khartoum. So I, I remember when I arrived in Athens, this is what's quite funny, so Sindachma Square, very famous square, so we discovered um, Souflaki, and we just loved it because, you know, it was near to what we eat in the Middle East, and it, because we loved it so much and it was so cheap, we were eating it breakfast, lunch, dinner, because it was cheap. You know, we only had $1,000. And only years later, we discovered that it was pork. And we don't all eat pork. Uh, but that was funny. <laughs> so that was a funny story. So <laughs> we lived on pork for, for a few days there. Um, oh, no. I know. And then, of course, these naive boys arrived and then this gentleman comes and said, do you want to go to a nightclub? We've never been to a nightclub. And I said, yes, please. So it took us to this nightclub. As soon as we went into this basement and suddenly there was nobody there. And then this kind of young, five young ladies came, champagne bottles opened up. Um, and, and then after like half an hour, we said, actually, most of us don't drink. There's only one, a couple of us drank, and it was Ramadan as well. Some of us were fasting. This was ridiculous, the Ramadan in, in a nightclub. So anyway, they said, well, you, you guys can leave, but then your bill is $2,000. And we said, but we, we don't have that money. And then these bouncers came. Anyway, I quickly um, said, well, can I just go then to the bank and get the money? Because we don't have that money. So we have kind of travel, travel checks and so on. So I went out and managed to see a policeman and then kind of help. And although that, the bouncer was me and he came and took us out, that was kind of uh, 
what was a funny story I, we still we still recall uh, and it was scary at the time I'll tell you so your mum was kind of right to be worried My, about you definitely, definitely right Italy was amazing of course going to Venice and all these places it just the whole trip was just so funny and and remember we wanted to go to cross via Yugoslavia but we didn't have a visa so we went to the consulate in Italy and we said can we get a visa to to cross because we wanted just to go through Yugoslavia and we stayed there for two days trying to get the visa and of course you know Sudanese passports in Italy to get a visa to Yugoslavia it's not going to happen and and that was after a lot of doing and throwing because we were stopped at the at the train station in Yugoslavia they said you have to go back to Italy because you don't have a visa to go through Yugoslavia but we said but we don't have an, a, a visa to get back into Italy again because it was one visa so we kind of we almost kind of did a situation like um, Tom Hanks in in the movie the terminal so we were really stuck in the middle but anyway we were not given the visa after two days but we had a wonderful time in Genoa and then we had to use the boat and cross but it worked out at the end and it was amazing amazing holiday so that was a nice trip that we've had lots of uh, anecdotes it's funny um, that when you you know now your travel is like mainly luxury based it's funny though when you think back the actual great memories of travel are those times when you're struggling a little bit you know when you when things absolutely. go a little bit wrong yeah absolutely I, I think for me the other travels i had so that oh, another good one i had is actually with with the family for my for my wife's birthday i'm not going to say which birthday but we went a few years ago to jamaica as a family and we stayed in this most amazing gorgeous hotel called jamaica inn in ocho rios um, very famous one of the top hotels in the world and i know when i went there i, f- I found out when i went there that Winston Churchill used to stay there. Marilyn Monroe used to stay there. It's beautiful hotel, and um, uh, it was just an amazing experience. And and I love Jamaican culture and Jamaican food. And one of my kind of best singers or icons in the world for me is Bob Marley. And and just going to Bob Marley's house is was the highlight of the trip. Jamaica Inn, this is amazing. It's only uh, one floor, so it's all it's all like rooms and villas so we because we're a big family we had a villa and you have your own swimming pool and you have your uh, your own beach if you like and it was just unbelievable and it's amazing because the food you wake up in the morning and they will say to you so the the, the breakfast was you know lovely different times but they will say you know what would you like to have for lunch today so you can choose and they can prepare the lunch for you v- very nice time and then we went to the Blue Mountain from there as well, uh, a beautiful time. But of course, the trip to Bomali's house was just this amazing, amazing experience. Well, actually, I've got a feeling that that's going to bring me on to my last question very nicely, unless you've got any more travel stories that you think I've missed. I mean, obviously, there's going to be lots that I've missed. But before I ask you my last question, is there any travel stories you'd like to tell me? Our last holiday, actually, we, we went to Thailand and and we went to different cities, so Bangkok, uh, amazing. I lived in Bangkok for three months. That was a bit crazy. <laughs> amazing. I know, crazy. We went to Chiang Mai. And of course, the gorilla, uh, sorry, the, the elephant experiences was amazing. Kosovoi and Chiang Mai, we stayed at uh, the Four Seasons. Oh, lovely. And there were just, it's like a postcard, Lisa. It was just unbelievable. And the people are so nice, the culture, the food. We just loved every part of it. It's just an amazing holiday. And of course, it's our last holiday together. Of course, I don't know when we're going to have a holiday again with the lockdown. I went for the World Cup in Brazil. 
with my son and friends. There were about 10 of us. That was really nice. Uh, we spent, uh, we stayed in, in a place called Bahia. We had this amazing um, villa on the beach. We, you know, you, you just get fresh coconut, fresh coffee on the day. Uh, it was just unbelievable experience. And Brazil, of course, and going to Rio de Janeiro and this and strange stuff. So when we went to Rio, we realized the hotel, we stayed, we stayed in the Caesar uh, Park Hotel in, um, in, in Rio, uh, uh, Ipanema. And when we woke up, we found that we had the ITV crew and we had the, um, the Dutch team. And it was amazing experience. So, you know, we were having breakfast with Ian Wright and, and, and you know, amazing players. So that, well, that was really nice. My son loved it. So it was my son and myself were in Rio. Then we met the friends in Bahia. And of course, going around um, kind of Brazil and, you know, Christ the Redeemer and uh, Sugarloaf Mountain, it's, everything was just unbelievable. I've traveled for a couple of world, I've been to one World Cup in Germany and also one Euro in Portugal. And there's just something so exciting and thrilling about being in a place abroad where you just see lots of different people with team colors, with their country's colors walking around. You know, you see the orange Dutch and, you know, all, everyone sort of, it's so exciting. It is, absolutely. We went to Marseille as well for the Euros. But for me, of course, as a Liverpool supporter, um, having had the heartache of going to Kiev <coughs> and losing the final two years ago, and actually spending the night in the airport because our plane did not depart was absolutely tiring and terrible experience. But then, then the next year we won it in Madrid and I was there as well. Oh, and congratulations. So, you've, you've just won it again, haven't you? <laughs> we, yeah, we just won the Premier League now. Premier so, League, yeah. yeah. So, Brilliant. Yes, the travel, trials and tribulations of traveling as a football fan is a whole other thing. <laughs> Oh my God, it's so expensive and it's so tiring. And, you know, and Kiev was amazing because the people were so welcoming. And, you know, I would never have thought I would travel to Kiev one day, um, but that was the final. And of course we lost the final, but the atmosphere was amazing. Uh, Madrid was so hot. I didn't like the atmosphere as Kiev. I think Kiev was nicer uh, because, you know, we the, the, the kind of the fan zone was very dry kind of, uh, there was no trees or anything, but while in Kiev it was a park, it was really nice and it was very hot as well in Madrid. Of course we won and that was fun that night and the next day. Well, I don't think we slept, so that was really, really good fun. I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a special moment, time and place of travel, what is that song and what's the story connected with it? Wow. I think... I'm going to cheat, actually. I'm going to say two, <laughs> if I can. So one of them would be Bob Marley, because Bob Marley, I grew up with Bob Marley as a youngster. And and actually, that holiday is probably one of our best holidays, if not the best holiday we had as a family. And to go to his house and sit on his bed, I was allowed to sit on his bed after convincing the guy who was manning the room and actually switched on my phone is this love song because um, it just was unbelievable experience. And I think that just show my love for my wife and my, my family and, and just the Bob Marley music. And it was just an unbelievable experience just to be on that bed and putting that song. It's like, wow. And my other song, of course, is uh, You Never Walk Alone, 
Liverpool came in 1982 to Khartoum, December, and although I started to follow them maybe two years before that, because Liverpool, of course, controlled the 70s and 80s, to hear that song in the stadium in, in, in Sudan was just unbelievable. And of course, coming back here, I, I am a season ticket holder, so hearing that song every time you go to the, to the match is just unbelievable. I still get goosebumps when I hear that song. So these are the two important songs in my life. You'll Never Walk Alone makes me cry as well. And I'm not a, a Liverpool fan. My dad's an Everton fan, but I'm from oh, the Wirral. Yeah, sorry. I'm from the Wirral. And my mum used to take the ferry across the Mersey to work every day in Liverpool. And just to come from that area as well and to hear that song, it just, it, it really gets you, doesn't it? It probably makes other people who are not Liverpool fans absolutely sick. But to me, I absolutely love it as well. I did ask that. I said that was my final question, but I wanted to also ask you uh, to end just a little bit about the miscarriages. And how does it feel? I know you try and, you know, separate the emotion of it and you've got to be very practical. But how does it feel when you've helped someone like me, you know, someone who's had five miscarriages, someone who's had a lot more miscarriages than me I was lucky in a way that I only had five how does it feel when then they go on and you know have a baby and become a mum it feels amazing because you know um I feel like you're my family because you know lots of my patients became my friends and they keep uh, you know contact and you know when it comes to Christmas then the number of hampers that arrive at my house actually i don't have to prepare for christmas anymore <laughs> uh, it's just unbelievable it's a it's an amazing feeling and and likewise you know when you lose a baby it's just horrible horrible feeling and i think to to sum it up i remember um this family from spain um they um rang uh, my secretary and they said we want to come back from Spain to say uh, thank you for, to Mr. Shihata. And I remember, and I said, wow, coming all the way from Spain um, just to say thank you. And, um, and I said, of course, of course. And then when they arrived, there was the, them, their parents of each, and their brothers and sisters. So they're like 20 people coming all the way from Spain to, so, to show me their child. And it was just unbelievably emotionally amazing. And I think we all cried together. And Adam, you know, they, they couldn't speak English apart from, from, the, from the patients. But it was just an unbelievable experience. And I said, you, all of you traveled just to say thank you to me. And I think I remember that, that couple had about nine or 10 miscarriages. Uh, and they said, this is their first grandchild. And for the whole family, they just wanted to have that grandchild. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience for me. And, um, and they brought me uh, a famous um, Spanish artist um, um, statue, and it still sits on my desk. Um, and it's just unbelievably kind of, when I see it every day, it just um, makes me feel proud that I managed to help some people. And also um, makes it more real, if you like, because however much you try to, to make it a job, but our, our job is not just about um, helping, you know, a medical treatment. It's about helping people bring life to the world. And that's just an amazing, amazing, I'm very privileged, I feel. I'm going to have to take a deep breath now, but um, you're right because, you know, the people that came to see you from Spain, it's not just about us becoming parents. It's about 
people becoming grandparents and you know it's a very special thing so sorry (laughs) (laughs) sorry I haven't thought about it in so long I don't even think I'm going to be able to say it but I just wanted to say thank you thank you Lisa and um, thank you for this opportunity and you keep doing a wonderful job and um, say hello to David and the kids for me I'll stop there (laughs) thank you Thank you so much for listening and for being with us throughout our first 100 episodes. I really do honestly appreciate every single download and every single one of you listening. Join us. We'll be back very soon. 